Merry Christmas. It's a solid ground Christmas episode number. I think we're at like 48 or 49. <laughs> David's doing the jingle. <laughs> Welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a, uh, we're actually pre-recording because we couldn't make our schedule sync up and agree on a Christmas recording. So this is a pre-recorded, but we just wanted to make sure to, to be here and say hello to all of you. And today we're joined by Cam Pamela Garfield Yeager and, and Pamela is the truthful therapist online. Pamela joined me for a conversation a couple of weeks back, uh, maybe in November. I can't remember exactly when we did that, but it was a little while back and it was a really good conversation. I've been looking forward to talking to you again. So I'm glad you can be here with us. And we have David with us again. David's uh, been busy with school, so he's missed out on a bunch of these, but we're so happy to have you here today. And Thanks for having me back, yeah. Yeah, since you're back, you want to uh, you wanna tell everybody who we are? Oh, I've been doing such exciting things, sitting <laughs> in a, a library and in my flat, <laughs> buried in <laughs> stuff. Um, uh, but it is getting done slowly, and I'm, I was telling Deborah the other day that I'm feeling a lot a lot better about it so I kind of needed to take a bit of a break just to kind of focus um mm -hmm. and I've never done I've not done a I've not done a course like this before that's required this level of focus so it does sometimes mean that you have to sort of say goodbye to sort of hanging out with friends for a bit and they kind of go where the hell have you been and you go ah thesis I'll talk to you about it sometime in the spring when it's hopefully done so yeah I've been missing you guys and missing the conversations um and um, it's nice to be back. And uh, I also thought maybe at some point we could talk, this is jumping ahead, but uh, a couple of days ago, there was a policy change in the UK, which is affecting schools, in fact. In fact, in fact, it's about uh, the uh, the responsibilities that need to be put on um, teachers, I think, to, 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 to play into gender ideology. But we can come to that. Oh. Maybe something I can chat yeah, about in the mix as well. I'd love yeah. to have you explain that. Uh, sure, David, that'd be great. And are you getting a break over the holidays? Do you get some time off from that work that you've been on? Well, yeah, it's a funny one. The course is the course is like both um, work and placement. And so, um, sorry, placement and thesis. So I've taken holiday, but I'll mainly be doing uh, thesis during that time. But I am taking like five days off of just completely unplugging from it. Uh, and I'm going to go back to Norwich uh, where my family all is. And we're going to do proper like, Christmas it's always the same in my my mum and dad's house which is that we sort of go for a long walk in the morning and then we get back and it's we all sort of have like a little station of chopping up vegetables and we, we all try and do <laughs> a little bit and we try and get like drag my dad into sort of like doing the turkey legs because that's some some reason that's the thing that he does I sometimes do the cranberry sauce my other brothers do like other root vegetables and we basically just like listen to music and start start drinking sometimes <laughs> about midday and then um hopefully everything arrives kind of turkey and all that sort of stuff by about 3 p.m um 3 p.m 4 p.m and um i think we nearly always miss the queen's speech it'll be the king's speech this time around but um we might try and catch it this time around but we always miss it um so i don't know but <laughs> maybe maybe not that sounds really idyllic. <laughs> That's nice. Does anybody else have anything special you do for Christmas or for the holidays? I'm going no, to, let, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, I just lit the candles for Hanukkah. It was extra special this year, given what's happening in Israel. I really wanted to make sure that I did that. And I, uh, my husband's not Jewish, but I taught him the prayer 
I wrote it out in English letters and so we could say it together. So that was nice. That's beautiful. Yeah, we're going to the um, Washington National Cathedral for their Christmas Eve service. It's really, really beautiful. And um, of course, we're going out for a nice dinner first. No cooking for me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are going to have Christmas Eve with one of my daughters and have an early Christmas with my other daughter. And then for me, Christmas Eve is really Christmas Eve and Christmas morning are my favorites. So I like to have Christmas morning and see the kids get excited about opening presents and just have a lazy morning in a robe with coffee. It's just, that's, that's what I look forward to. And I'm so late sending things out. Your first Christmas with Ben. It is. Yes. Yeah. It's our first Christmas together. Yeah. That's nice. It is. It's really nice. I think we're, we're going to probably do a live stream on Christmas because my, my boys (laughs) are so romantic. I know my boys are going over to their dad's house in the afternoon. So it's going to just be the two of us in the afternoon. And we'll probably have a really low key time. You know, we, I I don't think I'm going to cook. If I do, it'll just be, I don't know, some leftovers from Christmas Eve. So we'll, we'll sit around and play games and maybe do a live stream for Christmas. Yeah. That can be your Christmas tradition going forward. If you're going to create a tradition together. I know. Wouldn't that be (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. David, do you remember the blurb? Oh, the blurb. Do you want to tell everybody who Solid Ground is? I do. I don't remember it, but I'm going to find it. <laughs> you, can, you can do it off the top of your head if you want. Oh, can I? You know the elements. Oh, solid Ground is a wonderful place to be. Uh, it's <laughs> for anyone concerned about the imposition of... Oh, I can remember it now suddenly. Imposition of critical social justice, uh, a.k.a. woke, and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community... We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies and to answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 per month. And to find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note, SolidGround does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice and nothing we do should be construed as such. Awesome. And, you know, I think we should add to the blurb um the the like obligatory podcaster statement of like and subscribe if you are yeah if you enjoy these videos and yeah we've and got some we've got some merch as well um, we need to <laughs> tin foil hats that we've, yes. we've made before <laughs> yes. as, as, as seen in a previous episode <laughs> i actually have it right here i can switch i still hats. have mine yeah, could, I still have mine too i just found it the other day i think our merch should be a roll of aluminum foil <laughs> just a solid ground branded aluminum foil. Yeah. So Pamela, we just sort of threw you in and just kept going. But do you want to? Do you mind giving a little introduction to say a little bit about your background and and what you're up to? Sure. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker in California, uh, but I'm an unwoke licensed clinical social worker. So it's kind of an oxymoron. I don't think there are a lot of them, me, people like me out there. Uh, So I have over 20 years of experience uh, in the Bay Area of California near San Francisco. And I worked in mostly high schools 
I've also worked in group homes and agencies and hospital settings, um, mostly with kids and families, some with young adults. Uh, I've worked in an IOP eight, um, PHP programs, which are the programs, day treatment programs for people usually after they've been hospitalized for a mental health issue. Uh, and, and usually it has a DBT focus and individual therapy and it's sort of short term, like three to four to six weeks long. So those are the types of programs I've worked in and I was a clinical supervisor. So I have all of this experience. I've being a social worker, being a mental health person has always been a large part of who I am. And uh, back in 2016, 2017, I came down with a health issue and I had to drop out of my profession and take care of my health. And I came back in 2021. And when I did, pretty much the world had gone insane. <laughs> Everything about the world had gone crazy, but in particular, my profession. And so I was in a really big culture shock. And uh, I, uh, I have this... The, issue that doesn't enable me to work full-time and I honestly struggled a little with my I'm like I have a nerve injury with the pain that I was doing and they were enforcing me to get the COVID vaccine which I was not keen on taking after everything I'd been through so after being displaced so many times over and over again I, I just I let it go once again and I decided that I was going to be public about all of the problems that I saw in our profession. And that's when the truthful therapist was born. <laughs> My husband came up with that tagline. And basically, I just started speaking the truth about the things I was seeing in my profession, which is we're not therapeutic anymore, maybe in some ways, never, I don't know, that's up for debate. Uh, I think there have been things that have been helpful. But, you know, now I'm questioning a lot of things. But the, the point is, it's gotten way worse. And, you know, with all the COVID mandates, the masking, basically inducing OCD in normal people to we had to wipe down every chair after every session and tell everybody they were like balls of germs that we had to we had so we had we were the lucky ones that we had therapy groups, but they had to be socially distanced and sit away from each other and they weren't allowed to have lunch together. These are people who just went through, you know, a suicide attempt due to isolation and all kinds of severe anxiety, depression, schizophrenic, you know, seeing, seeing and hearing voices you know, all kinds of really severe symptoms. And we're like, nope, you can't have lunch together with your fellow patients that are struggling. And it was really just hard to be in that environment. So yeah, I just decided to speak out. I got very involved in the gender, you know, the gender debates. I saw I was working in the teen unit, where pretty much half the girls were identifying as non-binary. And what was wild was not just that that was happening, but that my colleagues were going along with it, not really going along with it, celebrating it and shaming parents that didn't agree with it. There was a, a therapist that once said that this one client, uh, she was mismatched with her parents. So not only was she supposedly born in the wrong body, she was born in the wrong family. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that that's That's the attitude. And really, they were kind and nice, and I liked my colleagues. So I really saw them as being very misguided. And I was new. I was just coming back from a long disability, so I wasn't really able to speak up the way I wanted to. I was really just about to really have those conversations when they took me out for the mandate. So I, I just went online and started making reels, and people noticed me. And then I decided to uh, build a program for parents to help them understand just what is normal therapy, unwoke therapy, like non-politicized, non-ideologically driven therapy, uh, which includes 
just being, uh, you know, working together with the family, being in, parents, being involved in, in the treatment, that there should be a formal assessment and it shouldn't be a, you know, a quick uh, one size fits all with the gender or really with anything that uh, victim mentality shouldn't be reinforced, uh, that people should be, you know, their agency should be encouraged and we should be believing in our patients and not just saying, oh, you can't do anything because you have depression. Um, we shouldn't be telling them they need to wear a mask otherwise they're killing their grandmothers. I mean, all of these things, right? So I, I wrote up a whole program, what it looks like to, um, when a kid really is suicidal and what's the difference between when they might be attention seeking and what might what might happen what would happen if you call 911 what to expect uh, because I have a lot of experience working with those types of patients I mean I could go on so yeah I've, I've done that I do consultations for parents now and I've actually I've written a book that's in with an editor right now uh, on the gender issue which is really an overview of a lot of the lies that all I think everyone on this call knows about, probably most of your audience knows about, but it also has tips uh, from me as a, you know, a 20 year experienced uh, therapist on just how to work with someone who's questioning their gender, which is really, really never has to do with their gender, but you know, so many other issues, you know, how to talk to a teen without pushing them away, uh, but also not affirming a lie. So it has all kinds of, I put like a trans English dictionary in there. Where can people um, find your book? It sounds like a really good resource. Is it not yeah, available it's not out yet? yet? So okay. they can't find it anywhere. Yet. Okay. What uh, about your I, I online resources that you have? Yeah. My resources are on my website, which is thetruthfultherapist.org. And I should, I'll, I'm sure I'll put a link to the book on there and I'll be announcing it on all my social media. I have a Twitter, which is Truth Therapist. I have an Instagram, which is at the.truthfultherapist. I have a YouTube that's not definitely not as active as yours, but it's the Truthful Therapist where I mostly just put Instagram reels on it or Great. a few other. We'll include all well. those links here for people to find in the description. So that's really, really great. Yeah. So yeah. how have things been for how have things been for you, Pamela? Like, have you have you found yourself ostracized from the profession, or do, do you feel? you know, have the, have your colleagues kind of like reacted to that? And, um, and well, your... it's weird because I think the reason this was so easy for me to do is I was already, I mean, not ostracized isn't the right word, but I guess displaced because of my disability. And, uh, you know, and I already was, I wasn't working. I was, I was already working overqualified for the job I was at because I was a supervisor for so many years. Then I was just a per diem kind of staff member and, and so I haven't really worked in my, my true capacity since 2016 anyway. So I haven't really felt that loss that I think a normal person would feel. I think that's why this has been so easy for me to do. Um, I was friends with a group of, of counselors that I was a temp at. Uh, they worked in San Francisco. It was actually with the elderly. And I don't talk to them anymore. They did ostracize me. And that was before I really became public, but just I just talked to them or was posting on my private things about how I was questioning Black Lives Matter and I was questioning some of these narratives and they just they just kind of ghosted me. So I, I've been ghosted by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I, I when I when I meet new people, it's a very mixed bag. So they'll either you know think I'm terrible or they'll say, thank God you're speaking out. Like, you're so brave. I wish I could do what you're doing. You're so smart. I just got a message. Someone just, oh yeah, I have a Substack. I didn't mention that. Someone just signed, registered for my Substack, which isn't that big, but someone just registered for my Substack 
like $6. And they sent me a little message saying, thank you for what you're doing. I don't think I'm smart enough to do what you're doing, which is a weird comment. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably they are, they just maybe don't realize it. Um, but I think people are intimidated. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's mixed. I get, a, I mean, clearly the, in, the institutions or the organizations, they hate me. I, I wrote, I went, I attended the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists uh, convention in the Bay Area of California. And I wrote up some articles on some of their classes that I attended, which were wild on gender. You can find them on the Substack, stack and the Epic Times actually re, uh, printed them too. And uh, I actually included some slides from their presentation and I got a nasty letter from their lawyer saying I have to take it down. So I did take down their slides because I, I guess technically I'm not allowed to, you know. That organization, I've, I, we, I spoke with Rick McCarthy, a therapist from California who had written a letter to, I don't, I don't know how you pronounce it, Camped? The yeah, Cal yeah. Yeah. They were, they're really out there with their, their gender recommendations, yeah. especially. They're really oh, very, a very activist organization. Very. They have some, so I didn't know who she was at the time. Now I do. I was, I attended the lecture with Dr. Joanna Olson Kennedy. Are you familiar who she is? She is that doctor that is went viral online that said, if you get your breasts cut off, you can just go get new ones. Go get, in, go get implants. Just go yeah. get implants. Mm -hmm. No biggie. I remember that. Mm -hmm. That's her. I didn't know I was in front of her. I, I, that night, I actually had like nightmares from that lecture that she gave because it was just, I just felt like she just kept lying, but she was really convincing in her lies. Like it's, it's impressive. I know the lies. I know them probably better than most people, most layman's people for sure. And I was still felt like I had the swirlies around my eyes, like because she says it in this very sure way and you know very makes you feel like you're a bad person to that way of different. talking is that it's that very smooth like it's mm. you feel like you're being programmed it's like totally. you feel like you can't argue with it there's something really hypnotic about that very that way yeah, i really talking. felt the swirlies and everyone yeah. was clapping um mm. yeah she said puberty blockers are completely reversible uh, they're just as reversible as wearing a different kind of outfit or getting a different haircut. She had these columns and reversible, semi-reversible and not and not so reversible. And the puberty blockers were with, you know, basically the social transition stuff, which even that you could argue is not fully reversible psychologically. Um, you know, you can make that argument, but clearly it's not, they are reversible physically too. We know wow. that. Wow. And even though we've seen the, the studies show that, that IQ drops. Yeah. People who've had, <laughs> there's the massive, there's not reversible. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's that viral video of Marcy Bowers, the president of WPATH, the surgeon who said that any, the boys who get it before uh stage, stage two stage two will never be able to have a, an erection and have an orgasm mm -hmm. so they they'll be sexually dysfunctional you know mm -hmm. and they have like micro penises this is mm -hmm. terrible mm -hmm. it's all even it's awkward to talk about but it's it's really evil stuff and they're just like no big deal which and her goal is literally to put every child on pause just so they could all decide what their gender will be later mm -hmm. like it's this thing why what like yeah, what do you think what do you think is motivating her to surely she knows that her information is incorrect what what do you think is driving such a thing i mean i i wish i really understood there i don't say this about most people but i feel like she's one of the evil ones she's one of the ones that has mal you know 
bad intentions. Malfeasant intentions. Yeah. Did you really um, say that their money and power? Did you really say that their goal is to put every child on puberty blockers? Are yeah. you serious? Some of them have that goal. Yes. Oh so my. That is that is one of the end goals. Is that to neutralize it? Is it is it to sort of say you're differentiating this way, you're differentiating that way? We'll keep you both, we'll keep you all in this undifferentiated sort of like pre-pubescent stage, and then we can when you've decided, you can go off. It's yeah, kind of it's, it's like breathing in the It's like something from oldest Hux, Huxley or something like that, isn't it? It's really dystopian, right? Really dystopian. Uh, but they make it sound like in they're, I mean, they're literally playing God, right? They make it sound like it's just no big deal. We can all just decide later, you know, like you can just, you know, wear a certain outfit and then later you can change your outfit. Like it's not, that's not, that's how it's they make it consumer. sound. They make it sound yeah. like you're being kind. You know, you're helping people figure it out. So it's, yeah, she didn't say that in the training, but I've read that. Mm. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I had nightmares after that training. Uh, there was another one where it was uh, it was it really for women who had sexual dysfunction, but they called it uh, people with vulvas with sexual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was one of the trainings Antioch offered to student to counseling students. And it was one of the final straws for me with that program. It was it was like sexual health issues for AFAB people with vulvas. And I'm yeah, like, I think that was you, a similar title. Yeah. Are you kidding me? It was probably the same thing. Yeah, I couldn't believe talk it. about like, inducing like, dysfunction in people. And then, and then talking about it's like, well, of course, hormones are gonna or are gonna screw up the sexual dysfunction, or all of uh, they're normalizing porn, and so uh, you know, people that's gonna screw up their sexual dysfunction. That's gonna increase you know sexual uh, you know encounters that are gonna cause problems. She actually talked about having you know uh, like orgies, or I don't know what word she used, but you know like multiple partner encounters, mm -hmm. and normalize that, and said instead if someone's on comfortable with it that they should just sort of take a time out or do some self-care and not recognize that maybe that situation isn't a healthy situation for them you know she's basically talking about gangbangs and things and like you know wait that's wait what, <laughs> <laughs> what? That's wild. yeah that's this this is sounding a lot like the stuff that I was hearing in my counseling program I mean there was nothing that like I, I've used this example before, but the te one of my uh, my sexual human sexuality professor talked about a client of hers that told her he was doing scat porn, and like oh. I guess it must be pooping. I mean, he's taking, he's filming himself <laughs> defecating in order to sell these videos or these uh, pictures or whatever images to people for kink for sexual gratification so there's some some i don't know any more than that that's what she described it as and that's what my mind says that is when i hear scat porn that's what that's what i can david don't google it <laughs> but um so this client is doing this and it wasn't about how this might indicate some kind of issues for for him or what what might this be tied to emotionally? Is this how, how could, it wasn't any kind of investigation of the potential psychological damage that led to this or that this could cause for this person. It was just about how to keep a straight face. So you don't laugh when your client tells you that that was the lesson. 
don't laugh. Sometimes they tell you things that are really, really, you know, you might not be expecting. And she's laughing as she's telling us this, like it was, all this was, was just like a humorous thing. And I thought, well, how, uh, what kind of counselor would laugh at their client for saying, yeah. for, for confessing this is well, Jennifer friend, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know. Probably Jennifer me. would laugh at everything. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on the context in the relationship yeah. and the. Uh, yeah. I guess there's a lot of. Do you think? Do you think, Leslie, at that point, because she was laughing, that like we we talked about sort of, sort of some figures here who have kind of like people who have you know they're not just the people that can get easily uh, conditioned by this stuff. They are the cult leaders. Like some of these cult leaders are, they're people who are almost kind of like I think probably reacting to like christ i can't believe i'm getting away with this shit you know <laughs> she, yeah. she was doing that like she was laughing like <laughs> i can't believe I don't, it i don't i don't think so because oh, so here's a a personal story just this is this is fun i'll do you i'll give you a personal story so my my ex-husband the reason he's my ex-husband is that he was a serial uh cheater i kept finding out that there was a lot of infidelity i had found a bunch of infidelity early on and then we split up and we tried to repair the relationship and and then i found more so it was he was still doing it and he was uh when i found out that he was cheating on me the second time it was with a a woman i intercepted a text and she sent me um she as soon as she found out that he didn't actually have a roommate that he was actually married with two children She's like, oh my God, I had no idea. And so she sent me a bunch of screenshots. She basically sent me their whole conversation, their dialogue. And what came out about her, he was exploring kink. He was getting really, this was what he wanted. He was trying to, and it wasn't something he could find within our relationship. So he's going out of the, out to extramarital affairs. And um, this woman was actually a counseling psychology student. And she talked a lot about how this was very important to her to not kink shame. And so she yes, was out exploring kink in these forums where she met him on Reddit because she was into this. And she's as part of her studies as a as a counselor. She's a sex positive person who yeah. was exploring her sexuality and helping. To, it was like this, this and she's she seemed like a really nice person, actually. They always she, seem nice. That's yeah. But yeah. it was like this was part of her she went on about this how important this was to her to not kink shame and how exploring kink is healthy it's a healthy part of sexuality and <laughs> but apparently she drew a line at infidelity so at least there was that yeah there was a porn 101 class too at this at this conference that i attended what porn 101 that was the name of the class porn 101 <laughs> and it was did you attend that class? I did. Yeah. What was the content of that? I mean, what it did was it really downplayed the harms of porn. And uh, they they really wanted to say most porn is good. There is good porn. There's bad porn. But we don't want to talk about the bad porn. That doesn't count. There's good porn that helps people. That was that was a lot of it. And uh, there, there's even, I forgot what they called it, but there's sort of this like what they called like a type of ethical porn that it costs more to subscribe to. So like Pornhub is like the, the cheapy porn. And then there's there's apparently some more, it's kind of like the organic version of porn, I guess. 
<laughs> where they you know they vet their actors they make sure everyone has safe sex uh you know there's certain things so it, for some reason it's better uh so she was saying basically saying that you know not not all porn is the same and so some porn is really good and um you know not she didn't talk about any of the downsides of how people get addicted to it and how it's a problem in, in relationships and uh, you know especially when people get unrealistic expectations of sex oh yeah she she was going on to just say like you need to know that porn is not real sex and it's a fantasy it's like watching a movie um so you know it's it's good as long as you know that but of course most people don't take it in that way especially young people so she it was it was very uh just skewed you know um she she looked at porn as a, a type of therapeutic intervention wow is it is it just purely like you know we can you know, in a simplistic way, we can push against boundaries, like uh, normativity. As long as we can free ourselves from the social environment, then that cures all ills. And that's the that's the bizarre warped logic. Um, yeah. Right. But I mean, I don't know. I, I listened to a podcast recently. Uh, some of the some of the guys behind, I don't know, some of the big websites, Pornhub and whatever. Um, uh, they're, apparently, they're putting into their algorithms more more trans stuff because they have some sort of utopian vision of if they recommend that more to the general public, these, that, that that's, that somehow is going to, again, press against normative assumptions about yeah. stuff. And there's some, there's almost this, this algorithmic kind of uh, activism going on behind the scenes, which is obviously scary. Right. The, there was an article, this maybe is what you're talking about, David, this article from a magazine called the critic, which I think is a UK magazine. And yeah. these are some excerpts from it um, that analysis from Pornhub states that in 2022, the transgender category grew by over 75% to become the seventh most popular category worldwide. Within the gay category, trans searches for female to male grew by over 202%. This is soothingly spun by the porn giant as evidence that society has become more inclusive of diverse gender identities. And so they're this is a good thing and they also said this was the second excerpt that um i saw this on twitter like last week in young's footage the scriptwriter comes across as relaxed about the grim reality that children watch pornography and pretty sanguine about the fact that it might shape their sexual script as adults he seems proud of his job arguing that for 12 year olds who've not yet figured out their sexuality or gender it might be helpful to see their nascent desires represented but while Rice's words might expose a mindset that's shocking to the outside world, the idea that pornography can be used as a path to self-discovery is baked into Pornhub's public relations. I mean, this is it. Like, this, this, that scene from, it's like a scene from Brave New World, isn't it? They're kept yes. in this undifferentiated state by these puberty blockers before they, because they haven't decided what gender they want. And whilst they're working out what gender, they're being fed Pornhub to kind of help push them along. It's fucking... It's like yeah, this is you're speaking about basically the goal of queer theory, which is to turn anything that's normal uh, away and yeah. to 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 you know flip it so that anything normative is wrong and anything different is the new way. It's it's basically a way to destroy our society. It's really scary and dark if you think about it too hard. It seems profoundly. It's like it seems like it's this profound distortion of everything that's natural and healthy and good. And it's interesting exactly because like I, that. yeah, I hear people, even people who are not religious will say, 
this is satanic because yeah, it, I'm not religious. It, <laughs> it, it has that feel to it. You know, it's just like against everything that makes sense, that leads to health and happiness and true human connection and life, just in case we don't want to stop breeding and have humans be extinct. I guess there are people who do want that. Um, I don't know. It just, these conversations, I have this strange urge to flee and run into a church and ask if they can give me sanctuary from the world in exchange for me just staying there and mopping the floors. But then I realize that this is in the church now and there's very little sanctuary left to us from this kind of craziness. Yeah. Come hang out with solid ground. Yes. Yes. I sometimes feel I need something like kind of like a spiritual sanctuary as well as a kind of psychological and community sanctuary. And well, that's a really, I think that's a really good point because there's something so anti-life about all of this. When you attack sexuality, yeah. Yeah. When you attack sexuality, you attack sex at its root. And what's the, what's the root it's the genesis of life and the way that people connect to each other most intimately and when you make that about everything else and you take that away from people and warp people from the time they're really young before they know how to think about this you've you've done something that's it's a spiritual attack but biology is confining somehow so we need to work against it and then you cut off every natural instinct that you have and then what are you you're not even human anymore that's right which i guess is why some of the people who are pushing this are also very interested in transhumanism it's like it's so out of step with nature and to therefore to me and when i say nature i mean just sort of like our nature human nature as well as just the way that the world is and so yeah, I just, I just don't think I've seen anything darker. Is this supposed mm. to be a Christmas special? I don't know if people want to watch this on Christmas. Deborah, I can't hear you, but you're speaking. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, now <laughs> yeah. I can. Oh, okay, I did this whole thing to fix my computer and it's not. Okay. No, Pamela, I was curious, just from the beginning, um, have you always been a person that's like, if it's something's untrue, it really bothers you? Like, was this like a new thing that came up in the last few years? Or have you, is this like part of your nature that somehow when you're like, this is not right, or this is not true, I need to speak? Or did this just develop because of the amount of craziness you were witnessing? Probably both. Uh-huh. I think things weren't as egregious before, so I didn't feel it as deeply. Um, I've never been one to be a public speaker. I've never thought of myself as the kind of person to be a leader or be even on camera. I was kind of shy and nervous and um, a self-conscious type of person. Um, I'd like to be behind the scenes. So that was not, not in my nature. Um, but but I, do, I definitely believe, and I, I learned this, this is about my family and everything, that I, I am different than them, where it's like, if I see that something's wrong or off, I'm not going to go along with people. I'm not going to... I'm definitely not a follower. And I remember even in high school, I was the kind of person that didn't really have a click or follow the click. I was, I was my own person and I hung out with all different clicks. I never really, I have that nature in me. So I, I'm no, I have noticed that about myself that I, that is consistent. 
that if, if I, there's something that I like differently, like I live in the Bay Area, everyone here loves to go wine tasting. It's a really big trend, especially like 10 years ago. It was like <laughs> everybody would go to, go to Napa and I would go with them and do it. And then there's a certain point where it's just like, I don't think this is fun. And this is not fun. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I just stopped. Right. And I just told my friends, like, cause usually I get headaches and it's just, I just think it's lame. Like if you just keep drinking wine, you can't even taste it anymore. It was all they wanted to do. <laughs> and it's just a small example of like, I just don't follow, I'll do my own thing, you know, even if everyone else is doing something else. Anti-woke and, you know, and anti-wine. I like, <laughs> I like wine. I just don't yeah. like the wine tasting. And oh. people go and spend all day just drinking yeah. different wines. You can't even taste it anymore. I'll drink if you, one if nice you can't taste anymore, Yeah, if you can't taste anymore, that's when you stop. But up to that, it's great fun. Yeah. <laughs> So oh, I, like that. I think that's a great question, Deborah, that you asked. And I think that's a, a great description. Well, I like the story Pamela. too, that yeah. you had this, but some, it, so there's something in you that's innate, but then it did take an extra step to be this in this public arena, right? Because that wasn't your nature. Um, but at like, a certain certain one... point, you're like, oh my God, I can't even tolerate this anymore. This is so wrong. Yeah, it was up until this, like 2021, I was using Instagram to post pictures of my dogs. I like to, I like to show my photography. I do animal photography and that's what I was really enjoying Instagram for. And then I started making reels about gender and then people started to notice me. And yeah, I guess now I'm an influencer, which is a really weird thing to think about, (laughs) but not, that's not really in my nature. Um, I noticed that I don't really have the the temperament for it. Um, but I want, but I also have this drive to want to say to speak because i know that so many people are silenced and agree with me i've and, seen you use humor very well there too you're really funny what? sometimes you're yeah, real yeah i really use humor funny. yeah and because i'm kind of creative i'm not like i think sometimes the, the topic gets a little dry and so because i can make it funny sometimes mm. uh you know i like to use my creativity well maybe so, that's the problem gender getting dry I mean, when you think yeah. about it, that's kind of well, and it gets dark. Sorry. I mean, like we were just happening, like, <laughs> and it is dark. That's the problem. But we have to reach people. It's it's interesting the different like points to catch people of their awareness of what's going on. They can't they can't handle the transhumanism idea instantly. It took mm-hmm. me a bit to to realize that that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Mama, you you also mentioned um, the word agency as well, and like I'm I don't know if I explained, but I'm on a I'm on a clinical psychology doctor course in the UK, and I feel like I feel like uh, no one seems to really appreciate that that that's I mean for a lot of people that's surely why they got into the profession is to help help people you know find an internal locus of control over their lives and things like that. But yet um, I've noticed over the last couple of years of being on the course that people people will stop themselves mid thought even just to kind of go, Oh, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not problematizing someone or I hope I'm not locating the problem in the individual. Cause it's so, it's so status, it's so sort of in the moment and it's so sort of trendy to say that um, there's a common phrase. It's like, um, we don't want to know what happened to you. Sorry. We don't want to know. Um, I don't know. What was it? I, it was, it was, the question is we don't want to know where you went wrong or something like that it's it's what happened to you or some there's some sort of phrase that gets talked about it's kind of like it's you not about, a victim shame or something yeah exactly it, yeah. And, and nobody nobody's up for having the conversation and, and words like resilience have been thrown out as well oh my gosh resilience, resilience is another thing that just basically centers the problem in the individual but nobody's really talking about the fact that if you don't center the problem in the individual at all then they are just a victim 
and they require parental, you know, they need the state to look after them. But nobody, exactly. yeah. So I don't know. Is that something as well? Like just following up with what Deborah said, like what was, she was curious about your your sort of like route into this. Was that something that stayed with you? Because that stayed with me as well. Is like this doesn't feel like it's giving people agency. Exactly. That that was my biggest problem with it. And I feel like the gender is sort of a symptom of that bigger idea is that we're blaming all of these social systems or social forces or isms or patriarchy or whatever, you know, social justice evil that someone describes instead of looking into ourselves and taking responsibility, even if those things right. are actually happening, um, you know, it, even, even if they're like I read the Booker T. Washington book, uh, his memoir, and, you know, he was an actual slave, but he had agency and he, you know, it's a really inspiring story because he took the help of both black and white people and he took any job, every opportunity he could get. He slept on the street at one point, but then he would, you know, do what, all the different odd jobs and he ended up building a school because he believed in people and clearly he faced racism. Clearly there was real racism, but he didn't walk around saying I'm a victim. He walked around saying, I want to learn. I want to make the best of my life. And I just don't understand how that's not an attitude that's being taught today, especially to young people. Of course, life is unfair and there are going to be injustices, but if we dwell on that and then we are defeated and we say it's everyone else's fault instead of my own, then we're, you know, we're, we're, we're nowhere, right? What's the point? Um, I mean, I could sit and say, well, it's no fair. Like 10 doctors didn't listen to me when I had a, a physical problem, I could have given up, but I didn't. Right. And um, I now I have gratitude. I did find the doctors that helped me and I'm able to sit here with you guys. I wasn't even able to sit up in a chair a couple of years ago, right? So like just to find gratitude and to find agency to be able to solve these problems despite the setbacks and the challenges. That's what therapy used to be to me. I, I mean, yeah. And I used to kind of lean, I used to lean left. I worked in the inner cities in, in Harlem in the Bronx. And I, you know, I thought that there was some kind of systemic issue that kept them there, but it was, I also recognized it was their culture and some of their individual choices. And I, you know, I, I work with them as human beings and I believed in them. I didn't say, well, well, because you're black and you live in the projects, your life is over and you might as well just keep collecting checks. And that's the end of it. Right. I mean, that's, and that's yeah. the attitude now. You know, something I'm reminded of as you guys are talking, David, you made the point about the state being the parent and and Pamela, your example about how we're teaching people um, not to look for their inner strength, but to accept their victimhood. Um, and you, you use the phrase, um, life's not fair. And I thought about when I was a kid and my mom would say that to me and mm -hmm. it would be in response to me saying, that's not fair. And she would say, well, life's not fair. And then my next thought was, but you're my mom and you're not doing anything to make it more fair. You should, your, isn't your job to make it more fair. And so there's this very interesting, I guess, if you, if you expand that out, the, if we treat the state like a parent, then you get this attitude of, wow, well, it's systemic. You should be doing more to make my life more fair. And that's where mm -hmm. you get this. It feels like that social justice attitude is kind of encapsulated in that framework. Yeah. And there's Somebody, some value in it. There's some value in it. Like if there is a way that you can make something more fair, why don't you? But at what cost? And and what, I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a point so much as I just thought that was really interesting to kind of picture that. It's like the state infantilizing the, the citizenry. Yeah. 
And I mean, that's the thing. The government wants to take over a family. Mm-hmm. And I think to your, to your example, your mom can make it more fair because she's your mom, mm-hmm. but the government, not so much government. This is, this has been my big red pill mm-hmm. is that, I mean, I believe in helping people and everything else, but uh, when the government gets involved, they make it worse. That's pretty much what I figured out. So yeah, state programs and this and that, uh, whenever the government gets involved, it's just not, it just doesn't help. They always make it worse. Even when they intend to make it better. Usually, I think oftentimes it starts off with good intention. The administrative state being a flaw in and of itself. Mm -hmm. That's something I quote, I heard, I don't know who said it, or I read it in the last day or so, which was basically saying, it's almost like progressives, progressives are sort of trained to say, I want to speak to the manager. Like, like something has been set up in our society that there's this whole managerial class. And then like, I have a complaint, I'm going to go to the parental figure or the Mm -hmm. managerial figure. I'm not going to solve my problem myself or something like that. And so whether it's parents or this somebody somebody else appealing to even, a higher authority well even at the yeah. schools like at colleges where kids you know can report on people because you know like they said something and we're going to run to the administration to lodge your complaint instead of just talking to this person and say hey why are you actually talking to having like a that? conversation with the person you have a problem with and working it out yeah i mean that you think about kids and how they're raised now compared to um, you know, probably when all of us were younger, like if we had a fight with our friend in school or, you know, when we were a young child, we worked out the problem. And now adults intervene instantly. There's a lot less kind of free time for kids to learn how to problem solve on their own. So, you know, it sounds like that it kind of expands to, you know, if you're in a, you're in a system where you don't learn how to problem solve, you go to the next authority as opposed to realizing you can, you can handle it yourself. Yeah. I think it's the downside of, I mean, as much as I was very happy some years ago that, I don't know, society was getting a little more savvy around things like therapy. It's like, people were like, oh, regulate my emotions or whatever, you know, like, but then it just became the entire society is therapeutics, therapized, oh, yeah. you know, like this whole therapy speak and every, like this whole, everyone needs therapy. I think actually that was my latest sub stack is like, do you really need therapy? Hmm. Um, most likely not, especially like, you know, my, my message to parents is at least try on your own. If your kid's having behavioral issues or if there's issues in the family, you know, don't go straight to the experts. Like think about Hmm. how you can, you can work it out yourself. You know, maybe you need to step up your game as a parent. I'm not sure what, what it would be, or maybe there's people in your life life like a relative or you know someone at church or someone else that can help but just running straight to the experts this you know we need I need a parenting expert to tell me what to do and how to do it as opposed to going by what you actually to think about what you think is right people don't think for themselves anymore yeah I think there's that outsourcing of the parental role to the professional and I think that that's that's something that happens I've I've seen that so I had two sets of kids you know I had my my older kids are 27 and 25 and then my younger kids are 12 and 10. And I saw a shift in like, in, I guess, parent culture between those times. And I saw how much more people depend on things like going to the, to the doctor. And I worked in a uh, primary care clinic when my boys were little. So I actually was, you know, talking on the phone with a lot of parents all the time, scheduling things. And I saw how much parents are outsourcing their questions to doctors instead of going within your family. You might, 
yeah. have expected to ask your mom or your sister who had kids a couple of years before you, but no, now you're going to the experts. And so parents are being trained and you've got all these well-child visits. So from the very beginning of your kid's life, you're supposed to be asking all your questions of a paid professional. And so it's no wonder that when your kid is 12, 13, 14, and they're having some kind of whatever issue, you're seeking a therapist because you've been so trained that you're supposed to outsource that to a, a professional. And I think that there's people, I get inquiries often from people who want me to work with their kids. Mm. And I, I say, no, I don't, I won't work with little kids, maybe older teens, but I'm not, I don't. And it's not simply because I don't think that I'm qualified to do it. Sometimes I may or may not think that I am, but it's also because I have an issue with in many cases, bringing kids to therapy. I think that the best way to handle a lot of things with kids is through parent coaching. If the, the parent parents. needs some more support mm-hmm. that you help the parent to help their kid and that the th- authority stays within the family. It's always about the family. So that's, and, and therapy, unfortunately, you know, with the Marxist ideology, unfortunately, therapy is leaning towards excluding the parents. Uh, we know this with the gender that if you don't affirm that the parents are left out, but even without that variable, that's still happening where the, somehow the, the therapist thinks they're the cooler one that they know better and they need to leave the parent out because, you know, the parents a fuddy duddy or something like that. So that you know, the parent, even if the parents are sort of however you want to frame it, bad parents or, you know, need extra help or maybe not doing all the right things, that's even more reason for them to be involved because that's the family that this child is growing up in. That would be the reason for the therapist to work with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and in the past, sanitize child yeah, sterilize the family and make it some perfect little picture. Right. Do you ever consider Leslie working with the parents? Do you sort of say, I won't, you know, I'm not. Yeah, I do. I work as a parent coach. Yeah, but I'll do some parent coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do that a lot. And uh, that's something I really like doing. Mm. I think it's it's great to be able to help parents and develop their own agency around working Uh, with problems in their family. Yeah. I was thinking of the word agency just then as well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's the theme this year in this conversation. Help people find agency. Help them believe in themselves, yeah. and not not defer to others. I think it was yeah. like a is, is it Yako Van Sile, the guy that I think Leslie, you've spoken to him a couple of times. I think I heard him sp- uh, speak to uh, Benjamin Boyce. He did a kind of like a, uh, a conversation about the good enough mother, and that's like mm-hmm. we hear about the good enough mother in our course a lot, and I, often I think it's because. It's, it's us trainees saying to each other, oh, well, you, you kind of messed up there a little bit, but it's okay. We're just trying to be good enough. We're not trying to be perfect therapists here. And obviously yeah. that's that's the case. But he was also sort of saying, but it's so important for agency and resilience and growing up into a fully functioning you know, person who's able to look after themselves and have, a, have emotional resilience because you have to spend time away from that child in order for them to miss you, in order for them to realize that they have to live with their emotions. They have to be able to regulate. They have to realize that when the mum comes back, that the mum maybe can come back, but they have to have gone through that journey. It's almost like these little miniature ruptures that have to happen in order to grow that resilience to get there. And I guess I've been thinking about this because I'm thinking, do you know what? Next time I fucking hear someone from my course going, oh, we don't like to use the word resilience. I'll be like, okay, <laughs> it's, 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 it's literally in, you know, <laughs> 
wire it's 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 about our brains wiring as we grow up so it, you can't take resilience out of it um i think yeah. that word unfortunately is being hijacked by the woke though real quick jennifer do you have to exit right now do you have an oh, appointment sure, that you need to go oh to? what time is it it's right at the hour oh no i'm okay okay so we can wrap this up i don't i just wanted to give you yeah. an out so you don't have to be panicking if you have a thing. oh no thank you no the that's really interesting the the concept of the good enough parent is something that i uh i learned about in all of my developmental psychology training and it's this idea that you are never going to be 100% and that that's not even really something you should aim for. And about an 80%. Whatever being, that even means, right? Whatever that means. Yeah. But yeah. but also there's this idea that, you know, I've noticed it just within my own kids. And I have my, my last kid is a really easygoing. He's got a really good, uh, I guess he ha he's very resilient. I'll say he's very easygoing temperament. And one of the things that I noticed is his brother was really high maintenance, a really high need kid. And so having them two years apart, this is just anecdotal, but in that having a two-year-old who was really high maintenance and needed a lot of attention meant that the baby sometimes would start crying and wrap up his own crying before I could get to him. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't able to necessarily soothe his every need all the time and so there's like this degree of benign neglect that's sort of happening where it's not on purpose you wouldn't you my instinct my was to go straight to him but i couldn't always do that and you and i watched as he You're developed person yeah exactly and i watched as he really actually developed a strength of of a of resilience in himself mm. an ability to self-soothe because of that and i think that people see that a lot with uh you know you if you're meeting every need that your kid has as soon as it's met, they don't develop the ability to meet their own needs. And yet, if you can meet their needs, why wouldn't you? So it's really hard to, it's, you couldn't really engineer that necessarily. Wow. And I think that's part of this problem of kids from high resource families, why we see more um, internal struggles and internal conflicts in kids who didn't have to develop some of that yeah. so there's kind of a sweet spot because you don't want to have none of your needs met you don't want to be completely neglected of course that's terrible about abuse and neglect are not okay but having everything perfectly handed to you also doesn't let you develop some of your own inner resources yeah i noticed that when i so i was in in 2015 2016 i was in palo alto california which is a very affluent community right near stanford and uh there was a suicide cluster that year there were so there were a lot of kids that were very suicidal uh, there were a lot of reasons for that or a lot of theories about it. But I, one of the things I noticed about the kids was their lack of resilience because they were so protected from any source of pain. Like, I'd say like regular life pain, like a disappointment, like getting a bad grade or some kind of rejection. Uh, so the the culture, that was really when the culture turned where they really wanted kids to just feel so good and have good self-esteem. No one loses, you know, participation trophies, all of that stuff. I think that that backfired where uh, then they got to high school in a pretty competitive school and the the culture there in, in that town is very academically competitive. And if I, I literally, I'm not exaggerating. There was a boy, he got an A minus in one of his uh, assignments and he was sincerely suicidal over that. And I think there was more under it, but that was the that was the trigger. That was the thing mm -hmm. that tripped him up, that he couldn't manage, that he wasn't perfect because he had been told that he was perfect his whole life. He never could, he couldn't handle that. So 
that, that the fact that our culture has done that where everybody gets the prize and yeah. nobody loses is it's backfired that's a really good example yeah so yeah there's so many things and of course the phones i mean people aren't able and i i find this with myself you know when i when i'm like stressed or bored i like pick up the phone and i'm like wait wait i'm gonna sit <laughs> you know there was a time in my life where i didn't have a phone to babysit me while i was waiting in line or waiting for an appointment you know i, I tr actually try to sit if i'm waiting for an appointment in the lobby to actually look up and just not be on my phone and look around it's really interesting. We all put our, pick up our phones and do things. Um, yeah. Unless I have a specific task, I actually try to not do that. Um, but kids are doing that. And so they don't, I've happily, I'm an adult and I've at least developed my brain to uh, before, before I got into that habit. Um, and the kids have, I think kids shouldn't have, have smartphones. The time where, they, you know, so to have, I mean, they used to complain when I was young about TV babysitting me. And now the phones are, are just, uh, 10 times worse so yeah i've noticed uh, every time i have you know every time but like i have a i'll have a slightly you know a thought with a little level of distress or disturbance or something or something is on my mind and i i notice that i just reach for my phone mm -hmm. i just it's like it is yeah. just like a, yeah it's like it's a pacifier a cyborg, for you cyborg, so, not, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, I, it's, I noticed that about myself and of course because i'm an influencer <laughs> <laughs> but it's not healthy, right? Uh, no. To always be on our phones to scroll or whatever. Um, so I really try, sometimes more successfully than others, to uh, not use the phone as a way to cope with uncomfortable feelings. It's, if I'm in a really bad state, then I will. But if it's moderate, I'll try to think of other things like going outside or just anything. Just sitting there and staring at the wall sometimes might be better. Yeah. And kids haven't learned that, unfortunately. And I think, I think that's one of the biggest culprits. Like, I think that's why kids are so poor at regulating their emotions. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons. Yeah. I think it's a really good point. There's a lot to say on that. Um, yeah. I'm really concerned about internet and children and devices. Yeah. Maybe one last story, because we've got how bored we used to get. Like I lived out in a rural area and there wasn't no other kids except me and my sister and there wasn't much to do we could wander in nature and I remember in the summer sometimes our big thrill was to go out to the road and the tar would get hot and then there'd be bubbles and we'd get a stick and we'd poke bubbles and like that was yeah. the excitement of the day was to poke tar bubbles <laughs> that sounds fun that sounds fun I mean, that's the kind of stuff and when you're young you know with wonder like that's you know that's important I think that, that kids are missing out on things like that yeah, I remember just walking, having the independence to walk down the street. We had this little stream with a bridge and just watching the water and the, the little birds and the fish. Like, what a big deal that was. And I, don't, I just think that's lost nowadays for children. Um, Tar bubble poke should be put on the app store, Deb. So you should you should you should stick that on there. Really well, you know, you can, at least you know, the substitute now is like, you know, the poppy tape, you know, when yeah. you get something wrapped. Yeah, the bubble wrap. It's yeah. satisfying. Yeah, my kids, my boys um for a while they had found this like really heavy duty i don't know what it was some piece of industrial waste but it was like a wheel this metal thing it was very heavy and they, they just called it the wheel and they would they would as we were out and about they would find things that they were excited to come home and crush with the wheel and so their the back <laughs> patio was littered with like broken shells and broken who knows what that they had destroyed with the wheel it was like this whole 
thing for them but destroying things was really fun not tar, tar bubbles would have been great but I can, get that hot looking, here. I can imagine all looking excitedly at themselves and going should we get the wheel out <laughs> <laughs> what do you think will happen if we get the wheel, the wheel. <laughs> yeah. that's fun so there's two more things for our merch so we're going to have the the aluminum foil the tar stick and the wheel okay. <laughs> <clears throat> well i guess about when, when we grew up and we, we were alone in our rooms we were alone in our rooms now kids can text That's our right. friends yeah yep. i mean i remember what a big deal it was and i got my own phone like oh, uh, just had a regular landline yeah landline i had so my own landline wow. in my room too yeah um, you could always I, somebody would pick it up while you're on it. You'd hear your brother yeah. breathing or whatever. <laughs> right, like oh, I got the phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, now kids can just text at all hours of the night, and um, yeah, they you don't know how to sit with yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't have to. Yeah, it's yeah. a good point, and I think uh, you know, as adults, we lose that ability too. Like you're, mm -hmm. you're describing sitting, having to consciously make a decision when you're sitting in the waiting room. I'm bored and there's a whole world of stimulation sitting right here in my hand, Yeah. but I'm going to choose to just be in this moment instead of diving mm -hmm. in. And so you are making that conscious decision, but you you have the benefit of maturity and of, of experiencing life before these things. And so having some kind of, um, some point of reference and, you know, when you're 16, 17 and you've, you're a digital native, you don't even have that point of reference. So it's, yeah. it's a completely new world. Totally. Yeah, you miss up. You know, we don't realize what we miss when, when our noses are down. So, Pamela, it's been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for this Christmas. Thank you guys for depressing Christmas special. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you guys. Yes. Merry Christmas to everybody. And Merry Christmas to everyone. We um are going to have for the New Year's. I think we're probably going to do a pre-recorded also instead of a live stream on New Year's. But Deborah had a really great idea about an Ask Us Anything episode. Hmm. So if people have any questions for us, we'll pay special attention to the comments under this video and we'll pull from those. If there's any questions or comments that you guys want to make and you want us to answer in our next solid ground, we'll do that. And we're, we'll go through and, um, look at a selection of comments from previous live streams and, and try to highlight and address some of those in the next video. So it'll be kind of a, an opportunity to do a year in review and, and it'll be the first solid ground of a new year. So it's our first full year doing this project, which has been just really enriching and, and fascinating and wonderful for me. And I hope for you guys as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like a really good thing. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay, say it once more with feeling. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. <laughs>